Jericho was an incredible triumph. It was a triumph of faith. It was a triumph of Yahweh's faithfulness to Israel to bless them and give them the land. It was a uh, triumph of Yahweh actually defeating this city in a miraculous way and a triumph of their loyalty and dedicating as the first fruits. It's all positive, except there's one little thing. In chapter 6, verse 27, the last verse, it says, Yahweh was with Joshua, and he became famous throughout the land. And then chapter 1, verse 1 says, But the Israelites disobeyed the command about the city's riches. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zebedee, son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, stole some of the riches that Yahweh was furious with the Israelites. So this automatically puts you on a bad note. This automatically lets you know that, yes, there was an incredible amount of faithfulness, but something else was happening that we weren't told. And so the narrators decided to separate these two stories into two different events. So one camera angle, you're getting all the faithfulness, and then the other camera angle is a flashback to a man and his family grabbing riches and running out of the city with their hoodies up. Okay, so the reality is they don't want to be seen. Achan is from the tribe of Judah. And he is really not caught stolen, stealing, but Yahweh knows. Joshua has no idea what's happened. Nobody's really known what happened except for Achan's family. Now, it doesn't specifically say that Achan's family knew, but the likelihood of you guys of a family living in a tent... <laughs> and your father bringing a whole bunch of stuff in, there's not many hiding places. So the family is most likely in on this in some way, either actively involved or by not saying anything at all and accepting the action of their father. And there's no point in stealing anything either. You're just going to have to spend the rest of your life trying to hide it from your family who lives in the exact same tent as you. So that's, that's very short-sighted. Here it says that Yahweh was furious with the Israelites. There are passages in the Bible that just grate against our American individualism. That's not fair. I didn't do it. And this is probably one of the hardest things for us to accept when we read the Bible of this idea of corporate sin and corporate punishment. Very often, when individuals do things, the entire nation is held accountable, or entire groups are held accountable. And we don't like that as Americans. We have built our nation on individualism, and that only you can deal with only me, and that's not everybody else. And even when like a whole class is talking, you got a few students talking or whatever, and you punish the whole class, they're like, that's not fair. I wasn't doing that. That's the thing I hear from my daughters all the time. Like, okay, clean up the living room. That's not fair. I didn't make that mess. I was like, oh, so you're okay with me washing the dishes that you dirtied, but you're not okay with cleaning up the mess that you didn't make. How about you do all the things that I'm cleaning up for you, and I'll do those things. They're like, oh, I don't like that one. (laughs) I don't want to switch. The reality is, in the ancient world, and in Eastern countries even to this day, like Africa and China and and Japan and and many other places, the Middle East, corporate identity is a big part of their their makeup. 
they don't think individualism. We typically think only like mostly for ourselves and what I want and furthering my future. And we really pride ourselves on following your heart as long as you're happy. And, and it doesn't matter what your parents have told you to do. You, you do what you want to do. And you follow the path that you've decided to do. And there's some truth to that. But it's too far of an extreme. In the Eastern countries, they have more of this idea that you do what is good for the community. You do what is good for the family. You do good what for, and even if it means sacrificing your own individual desires for the sake of honoring the family and promoting the community, then that is the highest value. Therefore, at the same time, what happens to a community is also going to happen to every single individual. And you don't really think that in, in, in both the East and the West, the community and the individual, I think we can take them too far. I'm not trying to advocate for one over the other because I think there are plenty of examples in America where we have pushed individualism way too far. And there's plenty of examples in the Middle East and other places where they've pushed community way too far to the point that an individual has no value or no free choice or any preference whatsoever. However, I would say after many years of studying the Bible and looking at what has happened to America, I think it's probably healthier to lean more towards the community and then it is the individualism because we have completely lost that sense of community. God is basically angry with all of Israel because the sin happened in Israel. And this is a hard thing for us to understand is even when it comes to things like racism and slavery and, and we like to think, well, I never had a slave and I never enslaved anybody. But the reality is our race did. Our race was responsible for the, the, the white people largely and, and, and there's a sense that we hold accountability for that and, and, and when the church is hating on homosexuals or other people and and not just saying that's a sin but actually hating upon them and you're like well I've never done that to somebody who's a homosexual to a certain extent but the group that we're a part of has and we own up to that and we're held accountable to that and and partly it's because our we're a part of a bigger group that is doing that and therefore, it's as if we're doing it because God thinks community-oriented. And the other part of it is, we're not doing anything to really stop it. And, and this is the thing with a lot of my students when I tell them, like, when there's consequences for what the few in the class are doing, they're like, well, that's not fair. I'm like, the reality is, though, you haven't stood up and stopped them. Because peer pressure works the other way, too. And you guys are all familiar with those quotes, like all it takes for evil to rise up is when good men and women do nothing and just sit back and watch it happen. And we know that even in America, you can be prosecuted for crimes of murder and stuff that you didn't even commit, but you saw it, but you did nothing to stop it or you didn't report it. I mean, in our school, if somebody comes and reports like abuse or something like that, I've got 24 hours to report it or I'm going to be held accountable as well for those charges. And so even in our individualistic culture, the law sees us more as a community. And you can say, oh, you want, I don't care, I didn't vote for that guy. But the reality is we're all going to reap the consequences of that president's actions, good and bad, whether you vote him. The people who hate him and didn't vote for him or her, they're going to reap all the positive things that he does in the nation, even though they don't like him. And vice versa, the people are like, I don't like him, and I didn't vote for him, 
or the people, we're going to reap it all. We're, we, we, nobody lives in a vacuum. And what you do will affect people. And, the, and we're seeing this already with the Reubenites and all that kind of stuff where they make a decision, and not only is their decision to live on the eastern side of the Jordan River to separate and break down the unity of Israel, they're actually, the consequences of that are going to affect the later generations. And we're already seeing this, like, I mean, movements of the hippie movement during the 60s is now beginning to affect us and stuff. And, and things take a while to ripple out into later generations. And I can say very much, well, it's not my fair problem. I wasn't even alive during the hippie movement. I didn't want any of that stuff to happen. I don't like the fact that I, like, grew up in schools that are now reaping the consequences of children acting this way because of what they did back then. But the reality is that's welcome to the world. What's interesting is though we don't like that and it feels very unfair and unjust, when you really begin to think about how life works, that happens all the time. And we know it. When the few people on the football play, team play and then everybody gets a Super Bowl ring or and everybody rides in, the coach just sits there. I mean, granted, he's an gr- integral part of doing things well, but at the same time, you feel like, well, that's not fair. He wasn't actually in the field. And there's lots of things that go on where our entire world is built on what happens to the community, affects the individuals, whether you actually worked for it or not, you voted for it or not, you're pro it or anti it. That's the world we live in. And so when God sees the whole community of Israel, he sees them all accountable. And so we could even take this further in saying, if this guy was taking things out of Jericho, chances are probably people saw him too. Or why in the world did a community allow somebody like that to exist? If somebody is willing to do like that, that means he's done things before that nobody has stopped him and that behavior. This isn't something you just wake up one night and do. And so the reality is there's a long history of why Achan did this, and God sees the entire community responsible for this. And even in baby dedications and stuff at your churches, most pastors turn to the congregation and say, and as much as my child, the way they turn out, is not just as much of my influence as a parent, but it's the influence of all the communities that I put my child into. And we're all part of this. And the way that my child ends up, I may not be able to trace it back to that youth group or that science school class or that science class, but somewhere in there, my child ended up the way they are today because of something way back in the past. Because the whole entire community contributed to that, for good or bad. And this is what God is looking at. He's not looking at it a precise moment where Aiken did a precise and specific thing. He's looking at the entire environment of the community of this is all happening in. And he is angry at all of Israel. In chapter 7, verse 2, it says, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is located near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel. And he instructed them, go up and spy on the land. So the men up went up to Ai, and they returned and reported to Joshua, Don't send the whole army. About two or three thousand men are adequate to defeat Ai. Don't tire out the whole army, for Ai is small. There's a sin happening in the background. God is angry, and Joshua has no idea. And so he's going to the next city of Ai. And Ai is way smaller than Jericho. And Joshua gets a little cocky. And he thinks, well, this city is a little bit smaller. We don't need to send in everybody. There's no point in tiring them out. Now, that already seems to suggest maybe a lack of trust in God. 
because you're truly trusting God, you don't really need to be worried about tiring out. And so Joshua's gotten a little cocky from the last city defeat, and now they want to go up there. So about 3,000 men, remember this probably would be more likely three regiments of men, went up, but they fled from the men of Ai, and the men of Ai killed about 36 of them and chased them from the front, line, the front of the city gate all the way to the fishers and defeated them on the steep slope. And the people's courage melted away like water. Remember, God made it very clear that the only way you can have a victory is if you're trusting in God. And the community has been compromised by sin. Now, here's the other point that God is also making. It doesn't take long for sin to spread throughout the entire community. And so even right now, it might feel like it's one man, but if that is left unchecked, it will spread. And I think we have all can see examples of that like throughout our lives. And so the reality is they fail miserably. The very small city compared to Jericho easily defeated them. And once again, this is an eventful. Just as they went in, and then they're running away. <laughs> and the idea is that this is a very drastic change in Israel's history. And then, remember twice, we were told that Jericho... And then another time that the entire land of Canaan were all melting in fear because of what Yahweh had done. And now the narrator uses the exact same thing of the Israelites because they're not trusting in God. And what it's showing here is that the people who don't trust in God, they melt in fear. The Canaanites are not trusting, they melt in fear. Now they've got sin in their community and they're melting in fear. And the reality is faith and trust in God is the only thing that gives you courage. And this takes you right back to the beginning of chapter when God comes to Joshua and says, Be strong and courageous, for I am with you. And he repeated that multiple times. And now God is no longer with them. And they have no reason to be strong and courageous. And now they're melting in fear. Verse 6, Joshua tore his clothes which is a very common thing in the Eastern cultures to do that, to, to physically demonstrate. Like the other thing in America, we're used to like stuffing emotions and don't hide it because I'll show weakness. But in the Eastern cultures, they're very expressive emotionally in their joy, kissing you, greeting you, hugging you, showing their sorrow and display. And neither one is, well, I don't know. Stuffing is not good. The reality is they show their emotions more. And so Joshua tore his clothes, and he led the Israelites, and Israel lay face down on the ground before the ark of Yahweh until evening, and they threw dirt on their heads. This is total repentance. And you have to realize that when they're throwing themselves on the ground, they are prostrating themselves. Chest, legs, arms completely laid on the ground in the dirt before God all day into evening. Throwing dirt in themselves. When was the last time you humbled yourself before God like that? So this says that even though the community is now sin and God's anger at them, that's still an incredible act of faith and love for God to throw themselves out in the dirt and just lie there all day or lay there all day until in the repentance of God. And so you prayed. O oh, Master Yahweh, why did you bring these people across the Jordan to hand us over to the Amorites so they could destroy us? If only we had been satisfied to live on the other side of the Jordan. O oh, Yahweh, what can I say now? Israel has retreated before its enemies. 
And when the Canaanites and all who live in the land hear about this, they will turn against us and destroy the very memory of us from the earth. What will you do to protect your great reputation? Joshua sounds a little bit like Moses, but it is laced a lot with the people of the wilderness. Joshua's faith goes completely out the window. And where Moses would come in, and he would appeal to the reputation of God and say, God, your reputation is on stake now. But it was still like, lead us, guide us, help us. But Joshua doesn't immediately assume their sin. God has made it very clear. If they fail, their sin. A good theologian who's heard all the messages of Moses standing right next to him would know immediately something's not right. But he immediately begins to accuse God and uses the same language that the people of the wilderness did. He says, the people of the wilderness says, you just brought us out into the wilderness to kill us. He says, you just brought us across the Jordan to hand us over into the enemies. They said life back in Egypt was way better. He says, we should have stayed on the other side of the Jordan River because we've already conquered that and life was good. The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the Massites, they got it right. And then he goes on and says, there's no way that we can defeat the enemy and then they'll destroy the very memory of us. The same thing they said that the Anakites are going to destroy our children and we're all going to die. Protect us. And the very last line is the only hint of a Moses-like faith that you get. And so what you see is a Joshua who's very lacking of faith here. Once again, the thing is, is we see these great men and women of faith and they rise up and you look to them and you're like, wow, this is what we need. And then they fail in some kind of way. And you realize, ah, ultimately in no way human can. In a lot of ways, Moses is foreshadowing Jesus as a great prophet and mediator. Joshua is foreshadowing Jesus as a great victory military leader of faith that goes out and conquers the land. But you have to understand something. In a way that they're foreshadowing, but in another way, they're not at all foreshadowing Christ. They're not at all foreshadowing Christ. What they're doing is, they're doing an incredible action of faith, and there's someone you can look up to, there's someone that you can set your life as an example of, but then they fail miserably. And what they're really doing is less of a technical foreshadowing or prophecy of what Christ will be one day, but it's creating a desire that, yes, this is what we need, but we, we need something more than this. And these guys aren't exactly foreshadowings of Jesus. They're each one has something that is good about them that makes you look at it and say, that's what we need. That's the kind of leader we need to save us. But then they fail miserably, which then creates a greater desire for you to want something more than that. We need something more with that. And the point of Joshua is not to say, hey, this is what Jesus will look like one day, because then we're lifting that typology or foreshadowing up way too much. The point is to say... <laughs> That's what we need, but we need something far greater than that. We need something more than that. And so we're getting a little taste of what the image of God can be, but ultimately we need something way more than what these images of God are able to give us. And that's what's happening here. The narrator is letting you know as great as Joshua is, as faithful, as godly as he is, ultimately in the end, 
that human leader cannot bring you into utopian society. That human leader cannot give you something. But you've seen a little bit, and you realize that something is possible, that it is possible to have something in this broken, fallen world. And then it creates a desire for something more. And only Christ can satisfy that desire for something more because only he can become the greater thing. And so a lot of times we look at leaders, great youth pastors or leaders or pastors, and we realize one day that they're actually flawed or they sin miserably in some kind of way, and we're horrified and shocked, and we want to take everything they've ever done and just shove it under the bus and act like nothing was ever beneficial. And rather than doing that, we should, one, our hearts should be breaking for the fact that they have too fallen into this like every single one of us and coming around their side and helping them recover and press on. It doesn't mean that we put them back into that ministry maybe, but at least become reintroduced into the community of believers. But it should let you know that, wow, if he was able to accomplish that, if he was able to influence that many people and make that many changes as a flawed human who had that going through his life, then there is something possible to experience something great one day. And that is ultimately found in Jesus Christ. And this is what the narrators are doing. They're not foreshadowing Christ. They're creating a deep hunger for Christ. Something more than Joshua, something more than Moses, something more than David. But at the same time, they're letting you know that your craving is legitimate and that craving is possible to have fulfilled one day because these guys did get pretty close. These women did get pretty close. And you need to think of more of that way, that they're giving you a glimpse that this is possible. Our hope in something good one day is not a blind, stupid, fanciful idealism that will never be accomplished. But at the same time, these people will not create for us what we need. We need Jesus. And that's what these, what, this is what the, the, biblical, the biblical narrators are trying to do with these characters as you keep looking at them. And so Joshua fails. He fails to truly put his faith in God in the way that Moses did. Chapter 7, verse 10, Yahweh responded to Joshua, Get up! Why are you lying there face down? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant command. Now we're just, I don't know if I really actually want to hear the tone in God's voice, but I just wonder what the tone in his voice was like. And, but the reality is, he never said that to Moses. Moses mediated. Moses got it. But Joshua is accusing God. And God says, look, if you'd paid attention in Sunday school class, you would know that there's sin. Get up, let's deal with it. They have violated my covenant commandment. Now notice the plural words here. They, Israel, they have violated my covenant. The covenant has been broken with their sin. Now the covenant was twofold. Remember, the covenant required you to be righteous by obeying the law. But everybody knew that there was no way you could do that. So the second part of the covenant was a sacrificial system. And the sacrificial system was how you atone for that sin. And so the covenant's been violated because they failed to be obedient so now we expect the sacrificial system to kick in. The Israelites are unable to stand before their enemies. They retreat because they have become a subject to annihilation. I will no longer be with you unless you destroy 
what has contaminated you. You must destroy the sin among you. And that's something I don't think we take very seriously in our American cultures, is the actual need to eliminate sin. Most of the time we just judge and condemn people and think that's removing contamination. Or we go way too far in the grace and say, oh, okay, but we're all forgiven. And then nothing changes. Get up, ritually consecrate the people, and tell them this. Ritually consecrate your souls for tomorrow, because Yahweh God of Israel says, you are contaminated, O Israel. You will not be able to stand before your enemies until you remove what is contaminating you. We learned in Leviticus that cleansing is how you become close to God. The only way you can step in the presence of God is if you're clean. And the only thing that cleans you is ritual purification of cleansing of water and blood atonements. Those are the only two things that cleanse you, water and blood atonement. Now, water is only good in a ceremonial sense, but there's an actual serious sin going on, so they're going to need a blood atonement. So they're, they're cleansing themselves with water. That's what means get up and ritually consecrate yourself so that they can bring some kind of a blood sacrifice to deal with the sin, so that the entire community can become clean again. So they're basically going to take a ritual bath in order to be right with God again. O Israel, you will not be able to stand um, stand before your enemies until you remove what is contaminating you. Verse 14, In the morning you must approach in the tribal order, the tribe that Yahweh selects and must approach by clans. And the clan that Yahweh selects must approach by families. And the family that Yahweh selects must approach the man by man. And the one caught with the riches must be burned up along with all who belong with him, because he violated Yahweh's covenant and did such a disgraceful thing in Israel. So they're going to present all the tribes, and God's going to pick one. And then all the clans within the tribes, and God's going to pick one, and all families within that clan, and then God's going to pick one, and then all the individuals, and God is going to pick the guy who did it. Now you're like, why doesn't God just say him? But this is really going to require you to like stand before God, each individual, come up before him, and really truly ask the question. This is kind of like the, your parents like, you're in trouble now. And you're like, oh my gosh, which one should I confess? Which one do they know about? The reality is, this is going to, see, if he just pointed somebody out, everybody's going to be like, yeah, see? Yeah, right there. But if you had to face and you're standing there waiting for the priest to figure out whether you're guilty or not, this is going to force you to cycle through your life. And this is going to force you to like search your heart and see if there's any offensive way in it so that God can lead you into the right path. And so this might actually root out even more sins in their life and really cause people to evaluate their life. God knows what he's doing. God, and, and most of it is, more of it has to do with the process than the actual just finding the person. He's forcing this through, and each individual is going to stand there thinking like, okay, okay, what's going on in my life? What's going on in my life? Is it possibly me? Because he didn't tell them what sin it was. The community has no idea. If you just said, oh, somebody got caught stealing a sucker, then like so many people are like, oh, that wasn't me. But if you don't know what it is, then you're forced to repent. You're forced to look into your life. So they're going to bring forward. Now, God says the entire this person's going to die. That's the sacrifice. You see, the reality is 
you're supposed... Now, that seems cruel to us because we're like, well, God doesn't believe in human sacrifice, and he doesn't. He doesn't believe in a human dying in the place of somebody else, like you offering up your child and killing it because you are trying to get what you want. He doesn't believe in that. But he does believe in you dying for your own sins. Noah, it was very clear in the Noahic covenant, if you kill somebody, a life for a life. It's very clear in the Mosaic law. If you go out and rape somebody, if you, you kill somebody, if you, if you commit idolatry, there were certain sins that required your life. That, that animal sacrifice was not enough of a death to atone for how serious your sin was. And this guy committed idolatry because he valued stuff in a city more than his love for God knowing that the very next city they were going to go to, God was going to give them all the stuff in it. But he couldn't wait. He had to have it now, because having that now was more important than God. And only that, he stole from God. Because this was supposed to be the first fruits offering to God. You're supposed to sacrifice this city and burn it for God. And then he decided to take that back. And so this is a guy who says, I'm not going to offer my first fruits to God. I'm not going to devote my life to God. I'm not going to serve him and him alone. And that's more than just, oh, I screwed up and stole a sucker at the grocery store. This is in my heart, I am against God. In my heart, I want nothing to do with him. In my heart, I don't want to be a part of the covenant. And if you're not in the covenant, then all there is is death. Because the only way you can live is when you're in the covenant. What God is saying is, yes, he's against you offering another human up as a human sacrifice in your place, but he's not against you reaping the death penalty for grievous sins. And so there is no animal sacrifice here because Achan and his family are going to die for their own sins.